I would like to take a look this morning at Philippians chapter 1 with you. Before we begin in the book, in the, book in the text, I'd like to set some background for you for what's taking place in this book and in the life of Paul at this time. When Paul writes this book, it's as though he picked up pen and put to parchment. Something he wanted to write as a letter to dear friends. There's a lyric about it. There's a rhythm that kind of flows through the book. And joy is definitely there, but commitment is inexplicably put there. This is not a book of young Paul. This is a book of the old soldier Paul. This is a book written by the man who will say, I bear the marks of Christ in my body. And he will speak of many of those in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There's a positiveness about it. There's an excellence about the kind of attitude that Paul has toward these brethren and with these brethren who are close to him. It's a portrait of a man who is possessed with a single-minded passion. And that passion is the gospel of Christ and God's people. It's a passion that we must have. We may find ourselves in completely different circumstances than what Paul is in. But this portrait of this spiritually minded man paints for us an attitude and relationship with God and with others that is just so exemplary. As I understand the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes is the diary of a materialist. Material, it's not saying materialist that he doesn't believe in God. He believed in God, but the materialist point of view about God is totally different than the spiritualist, if I may keep the terminology there. You have a material-minded man versus a spiritually-minded man. And just in your examination, you're reading, if you take the book of Philippians, and you lay the book of Philippians beside the book of Ecclesiastes, you have a totally different picture of God. Solomon say, God gave it to you, God will take it away. And as a result of that, everything is vanity. Vanity and vexation of spirit. That's not what you hear Paul say. Paul will never say, God gave it, God will take it away, and as a result of that, everything is vanity and vexation of spirit. That is not the heart and attitude that Paul has. The reason sometimes we don't get to a number of things is because other things get in the way. There's an idealism to Paul, not cheaply held. And I think it's a challenge to us when we're young, 
Idealism is, is that thing about youth and an experience that is to be admired. There's a certain worldview that the young have in that idealism that they've painted in their minds about what life and the world and what people are about. But as you get older, and there are some bumps and some bruises, some scrapes, some scars, some hurts, that passion that was once held in the beginning can begin to flag. And the idealism can, can be replaced by what we call reality. But what we need to grasp fiercely for is to maintain that kind of idealism, though not cheaply held. And we'll see that in Paul. We'll see that this morning. These are dear people to Paul. He is concerned about them. He is concerned that, that there's something that's a rift among a few in the church there. He did not spend a lot of time with them. This was a deep relationship formed, having spent very little time, a brief amount of time with these people. But when he writes them, he writes them as though he has known them all his life. And so I want us to look this morning at the first chapter, at least down through verse 25, of the book of Philippians. And the first thing I'd like for you to see with me here is I'd like, to see, I'd like for you to see with me Paul's gratitude toward them. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you with all joy for your fellowship from the first day until now, and being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of me, with me of grace. As Paul writes this, and especially as he expresses himself in the first uh, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. I wonder as he writes this, does he think back to the occasion in which he meets Lydia? Which is where this whole thing began in Acts chapter 16. When he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer by making in every prayer of mine, making requests with joy. Does he think back to that moment which he comes upon that riverbank? And there's this woman who is a prominent woman. And he teaches her the gospel. When I think about you, I think about that occasion. And Lydia, while she's not mentioned specifically, I think back to those moments that we were together. And I think a sidebar of what we can draw from that is, is that we need to always be ready to take advantage of an opportunity. We need never become so, so driven by where we're headed. Paul could have said, you know, I'm not stopping at the river. I've got other places to go, and I'm not going to let you impede me here. Hi, how are you doing? I'm on my way. No, he was not too busy to stop and take advantage of the opportunity to teach her. And I wonder sometimes in the hectic, hectic, hecticness, franticness, 
frenzy. Y'all pronounce that for me. In the rush of our lives, I like it better. Thank you. In the rush of our lives, if sometimes we have our head down and we are driven and we run right by some people we can teach at the riverside. We must always have our, our hearts and our homes open to the opportunity to teach people and then reflect upon the time that we met them and have helped them become a Christian. Do you have people like that? Do you have people that, that you've met along the way and you help them obey the gospel and, and on occasion when, when maybe you're a little bit low, you, you think about those people? I think about some of you that way. I think about folks in Del Rio that way. I think about a couple that, that wandered into our building one day, thinking they were going down the street. And they heard me teaching class. I visited with them, asked if they'd like to have a Bible study. We baptized one in the lake because the baptistry was not functional at the time. By headline. Years later, years later, that man became an elder of the church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They now are living in Seattle. Their job changed. I think about Bob and Linda a lot. And the influence they've had upon people in other states. And when I think of them, I thank God for them. Oh, by the way, where we started studying with them was on the Holy Spirit because they were hearing me teach about spiritual gifts. And I had made the statement that spiritual gifts are no longer in act today. And they didn't understand why. I've never started that place with anybody else. That was quite, a, quite unusual. But what I did was I just let the Holy Spirit do His work. <laughs> That's the other side. The Philippians were not wealthy people. They're part of that Macedonian area that Paul is talking about. They were support. We didn't ask them, but they said, no, we're not having to do with this. Paul could have come in with them and they could have, they could have said, you know, let those bigger churches take care of that. That Corinth church, that Corinth church is bigger. They're richer. We're poor. We can't handle this. Let them take care of that. And they said, no, we're not having that. Paul said, when I began the gospel in chapter 4, he said, when I began the gospel, you helped me once and again. Over and over again you came to me. And these are people who he didn't even ask to give, but they insisted on giving. Because Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 8, of those people in that area, they first gave themselves. And so this is the relationship that Paul has with them and the gratitude that he has. But picking up the reading now in verse 9, and this I pray that your love may abound more, still more and more, in knowledge of all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory of God and praise. And you hear further about the sentiment he has. But then he says in verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it's become evident to all the whole palace guard, the whole palace, so it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul is in prison. He's not there because he refused to pay his taxes. He's there because of the gospel. But as we unfold this story, you begin to think that Paul is the person that's free and everybody else that's coming to see him is in prison. That's the confidence that commitment and joy will produce. Paul's not concerned about his chains. 
He's concerned with how has this affected the gospel and how has this affected others. And there's a quietude, there's a confidence that comes when we know how everything's going to turn out and when what is important to us cannot be taken from us. He said, I want to magnify Christ in my body. I don't want to do anything that will shame He who died for me. And nothing that is important can be taken away from me. What a spirit. I told you there was a positiveness, an excellence about his spirit. What a spirit. Here he is in a condition not of his own doing. And his heart is not on himself. His heart is on others. And how is this affecting them? And the only thing he can think about is also, I don't want to shame my Christ. Everything's going to turn out all right. Is what he's saying. But then verse 14 he says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And what he's saying is, is this situation that I find myself in here. He didn't have his head between his legs, pining away the days of woe is me. He rejoices in the fact that now others have become much more bold to preach the gospel. It has had the opposite effect of what others would have thought. It hasn't quieted, it hasn't stymied the gospel. It has made the gospel come alive further in Philippi. And what I would say about that as we move past that is this. People are watching us. People are watching us. They were watching Paul. They were watching Paul to see how this was affecting him. And they saw his spirit, his attitude in this. And they were built up and were exploding because of that. And we need to have that same spirit and quit dragging our tongues on the ground because we have our head bowed so low. Of all people, we are people who ought to feel commensurate with Paul that we don't want to do anything that will shame Christ and know that people are watching us and when they see us, they see the Lord. But they see us with our head bowed, our tongue dragging the ground because everything is woe is me. What is there about what we are selling they want? Why has that made a difference in their lives? Why has it made a difference in our lives? What difference will it make in their lives? Paul is saying, people are watching me and this is what they're seeing. And people are watching us. I realize we're people. I understand. And Paul's not saying that he's some kind of super Christian here. Paul's not a superman here. Paul is going through some really, some really trying times here. And he's not asking us to be super Christians here. There's nobody with a, with a red cape on and an S across their chest here. But he's telling them something that we need to understand. And that is we live in this life and we have highs and we have lows. But maturity comes when we can knock off the mountaintops and fill in the valleys and have an equanimity of spirit because we know who is in control of our circumstances and we know it's all going to turn out all right. We have that kind of faith. 
in our Lord. And that's what Paul is saying here. And that's the kind of gratitude he has for them and the relationship he has with them. The second thing I want you to see with me here in this is Paul's purpose and problems. Wouldn't it be nice if the Holy Spirit had just stopped at verse 14? <laughs> and what a crescendo that would have been in the end of the book. Okay, let's move on because, man, things are great there. But then you have that word but in verse 12, which changes directions. The word some, you don't really think about changing directions, but he's going to change directions from what he just said. It might be a however you would put there. However, some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife. And some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, and yes, will rejoice. Paul said there are some people who preach, and they have some awfully vain, awfully vain reasons for doing so. Some are filled with filthy ambition. Some have a vanity about them. And some are just doing it because it's an easy way of making a living, they think. And listen. Listen. If you want to cheat, if you want to cheat, it's an easy way to make a living. Because if you want to cheat, and just separate yourself from people and just show up on Sunday morning and preach and then separate yourself from people more. That's a nice way to make a living. But that's not what Paul's saying here. And that he said, some have some very low motives for doing it. He said, but I'm not going to play their game. He said, there's some people who just have the game of playing big preacher-itis. Of saying, I know what people will think of this sermon. I know what people will think of me. They will think that is the best sermon and the greatest preacher they've ever heard and they've never heard a sermon like that and they've never heard a preacher like that and I will be great. And Paul said, I'm not playing that game. I'm not playing that. Paul said, I don't preach out of low-born motives like that. There are some that preach that way. But I don't preach out of low-born motives that way. But here's the most fascinating thing of all that he says at the end of that. Some have those low-born motives. Some are doing it on the cheap. Some are doing it on the slide and some are just making money for doing it. But he said, here's, here's what I'm thankful for. <laughs> now, before I go there, you know what he says, but you read it. What might have been our response to that kind of thing? Would we have said, I tell you what, we're going to call that guy's name out and we're going to put him under our heel. We're going to grind him under dust like he's nothing. And we're going to send him out of sight and out of mind. We're going to send him to Siberia, never to be seen, never be seen, never to be seen again. I'll get him in. Never to be seen again. The very idea he could come in here and he thinks he could trump our great preachers with our great sermons. Because they had their names on the side. They're in lights. They're great. Competition among preachers is horrendous and terrible. And it is a bane. And it's an insult to the gospel. And it was an insult to Paul. And Paul said, I'm not playing that. You can be partners. You can share in the gospel. 
You can have an equanimity about yourself with each other. And you can be rejoiced when the other does well. And you can be sad when the other stumbles. But that's not what they're doing. They're trying to stick it to Paul. But Paul said, the thing I'm thankful for in view of all that is, the gospel is still being preached. And while there are those who preach for some awfully low-born motives, Paul is saying the gospel is still being preached. And in this, not I will spit and grind, I will kick and scream, but I will rejoice. And yes, we'll rejoice. I told you, there's a positiveness. There's a lyric about this man. And when he writes this, why doesn't he call them out like Hymenius and Alexander like he does in the pastoral epistles? I don't know. The Holy Spirit didn't think that was necessary. But I will pause and say this. One thing I know you see, and I hope you continue to see, is that Jordan and I, we're not in competition. When Jordan does well, right behind Holly, I'll be his biggest cheerleader. I just came back from Charlestown Road in Albany, Indiana. They have a shrine to Jordan in the foyer. And when I went in, I bowed. The first thing I did was I tell them how much we love them and I love them and appreciate them. And you know, here's a young man that comes in. I don't think I'm old, but I'm older. I've been here a while. And all he does to you is praise me. Even when he knows I've laid an egg. That's not the spirit these people have. And that's not the spirit we have, and that's not the game we're going to play. And I hope you see that. And I hope you continue to see that. But Paul had this problem with them. But notice verse 18 says, if you're going to preach this, if you're going to preach this gospel, you have to live this gospel. This has to be serious to you. If you're going to preach it, you've got to live it. And then it will say in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of your spirit of Jesus Christ. This deliverance is not from, from, from salvation and death, but to the redemption that will see Christ. This is all going to turn out right. I know who's in control. I know who's calling the shots. I know everything is going to come out on schedule just like he has it planned. The circumstances are in his hand, and I will leave them in his hand, and there's no value in me fretting over it. I want to live it. I preach it. I want to live it. And furthermore, I know, I know. Didn't say, I think, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. And furthermore, the supply of the Spirit. This is going to be beneficial to all. And then he will come and he will say, according to my earnest expectation, hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed with all boldness. As always. So now Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain.
That was the attitude that Paul had. The reason he could say dying was gain because living is Christ. And when we have living is Christ, then dying will be gain. And what he's saying is, Christ is my all in all. If you cut a hole through Paul and you do it through, all you're going to see is Christ. He is my everything. And I have to ask myself, I ask you, do we have that kind of commitment? Do we have that kind of commitment to the Lord? But then the third thing I want you to see as this unfolds is y'all want to see what he says. In verse 21, he says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. What makes it gain? Is the thing that makes living in Christ gain the pearly gates and the golden streets, the jasper walls, is that what makes this game? For those of us who might have some love of golf, is it the imagination that Augusta will be transported from here to heaven and we'll be playing Augusta free of charge every day with a new set of clubs, custom made? Why, why, why does the Holy Spirit use these words? He's using beggarly words to try to paint a vision for us about the grandeur and the beauty of what God has prepared for those who are in Christ. But it's not the theme. Would you get a little concerned if you go to a shower of a young couple getting married and you see the young bride more interested in, was everything on my registry list checked off? And then fret because something she wanted was left off and paid no attention to the groom whatsoever? Wouldn't, wouldn't you get a little concerned about that? That she's got her attention focused on the wrong thing? I know you don't get any more, but when Jody and I got married, we got some china. And what if you get that nice china? What if you inherit that china from your grandmother or your mother and you get more infatuated with the china than you do the person you're marrying? Wouldn't you have a little problem with that? And what that says to us is we've missed the important thing. We've missed the importance of the relationship. We miss it if what we do is become infatuated with all the accoutrements that surround us and fail to have that relationship with Christ. He said, I want to magnify Christ in my body. I don't want to miss a thing about Him. And the thing that makes this all worth it is the relationship we have with Christ. Christ is my all in all. So what makes heaven heaven? Is it all the gold, all the silver, all the jewels that are there? Like the king's, like the queen's jewelry over there in Buckingham? Is that what it is? No. What makes heaven is this. If none of those jewels are there, if in the end we are able to be graced with heaven and we find out they're just hard dirt caliche roads and barren mountains like West Texas, but God is there. 
that will be heaven. 1406 Shadow Hills Drive is something constructed. It's a house constructed. But that's not why it's home. It's home because she's there. Anywhere she is, that's home. The hellishness of hell is because Satan's there and God is absent. It's banishment from God. But the heavenliness of heaven is because God is there. I'm fascinated by how Paul speaks then as we continue. For he said, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul says, I'm hard-pressed. Old King James, I like the word there, said, I'm a straight. I'm in a straight between two. Hard-pressed. There's something that's narrated. Is he hard-pressed because he's, he's, he's now afraid of facing the chopping block when his head's going to be lost? That's not it. He said, I'm in a straight because of this. I really, I really want to, I really want to go. I've seen it before, and I couldn't talk about it. And I couldn't describe it to you because if I had words to describe it, you still wouldn't get it. And that's the problem we have in Revelation. We still don't get it. John tried to describe it. He said, but it's not because I saw all that. It's because I saw him. And I really want to go. I really want to go be with him. But here's the straight. Here's the hard-pressing thing. When I look about, I see it's more needful that I stay and be with you. There's something you need that I can supply that's more important than my going to be with Him. What a spirit. <laughs> what an attitude that He says. I would love and, and long to be with Him, but it is more needful that I stay to be with you. That's the dilemma that He faces. And so He says, it is then expedient that I stay. But those weren't the words of Christ. The words of Christ were, it is expedient, it is necessary that I go. Because if I don't go, you don't have a way to the Father. But Paul said, it's more necessary that I stay so I can help you see the way to the Father. And I'm concerned about you because there are a few of you who are having some problems. But moreover, this is what I want, for, I want for you. Going back to the first part of the chapter, he will say, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. You may approve all things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. You're doing great, but I want you to abound more and more. I'm so proud of you. But I know I know there's more for you to do. And I know there's more you're going to do. And when you do this, will abound to the fruit of righteousness and the glory of God. And I see it's necessary that I stay and I help you accomplish that. More so than me going with my heart's desire to be with God. 
As I close, what Paul is saying is, those who preach for low-born motives could not stop it. Brethren who were only outs could not stop it. Death could not stop it. None of those could overcome and none of those would stop Paul. And what he says is there's no place to quit. So, if dying is going to be gain, then he said, let's get about making living all about Christ. And when we do that, when you do that and I do that, then dying, dying will be gained, and we will help each other abound more and more and accomplish greater and greater things, not because we are so great and because we have our names in lights, but because we have understood one basic thing. Greatness is found in service, and that service is found in service to the Lord and to His people and helping others abound. That's what Paul is telling us here. Now, what kind of spirit will we have? Will that dying be gained because living is Christ? Is He the consummate reason? Is He the very heartbeat and pulse for our lives? Then if He is, I just simply don't matter as a person because He's my all in all. Thank you for listening and considering that. Anthony's going to lead us in a word of prayer. And then Rob will have a verse or two of a song. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.